Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, that you have written to us. And we thank you, Father, you have written with us in mind. We pray, O Lord, that you would use your word to speak to our hearts and to comfort them, uh, to, to give them joy, and to assure us of your promises, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For the past few weeks, uh, Casey and I have been watching a, a show on TV called Five Days at Memorial. And the show kind of centers around the, the event of Hurricane Katrina hitting New Orleans back in 2000, uh, 2005. And the event takes place, all the filming is done inside of this hospital in downtown New Orleans. And so when the, when the hurricane's coming towards New Orleans, they're thinking, you know, well, we, we need to get stocked up on water and food and so on and so forth. And so they do. No one really expecting the hurricane to be as, quite as bad as it actually was. So the show goes on and the hurricane finally hits and eventually um, the, the, the hospital becomes full from people off of the streets. Flooding starts, the power goes out, uh, and all the supplies is left down in the basement uh, where there's four feet of water. And so the show kind of each episode centers around an event that just makes you say, like, what in the world is happening? It, 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 takes, it, it, it captures the response of the people that, where, where ordinary life just goes out of the window. And things that we take for granted, such as power that run ventilators and other medical devices that they would need. It, it, those, those things go out of the picture. And kind of as each thing happens, and as these people are stranded in the middle of New, or- New Orleans with, with no way to get out and, and no help to come for them, it, it, and their lives keep falling apart, it's as if the show just kind of keeps asking the question, what are we going to do now? Characters, you know, when these things happen, they ask, what are we going to do now? They look to their leaders, of which there was none. What are we going to do now? Right? Their lives are literally deteriorating before their faces. And their patients' lives, which they can't help, are deteriorating before their faces. And they keep asking the question, what are we going to do? Their lives were falling apart. And they didn't know what to do. And perhaps that has happened to many of us. Perhaps it may happen in the future, not necessarily maybe getting stuck in the middle of a giant city with a Category 3 hurricane. But the events that that cause us to ask the question, what are we going to do now? The events that, that make it feel like my life is falling apart. My whole world is falling apart right before my face. What am I going to do? What do we do when life falls apart? Though we don't really realize it until about halfway through the chapter, that statement, right, my world is falling apart, my life is falling apart, captures 1 Kings chapter 12. 
Though we don't really realize it until we get down into to verses 20 and following. That's, what ha- that's what's really happening in Israel. Life is, is literally falling apart. Well, well, how is it falling apart? Well, we're kind of, the issue at hand begins in verses 1 through 5. Solomon has passed away. Rehoboam, we're told in chapter 11, verse 43, is, is uh, given the throne. He's king now over all Israel. And so verse 1, he goes to Shechem to, uh, for his official coronation. And while he's there, the people of Israel choose this period in time, this point in time, to come to Rehoboam and ask him, will you please not make our lives miserable? Now, they literally ask, please, will you have mercy on us unlike Solomon your father? Which kind of gives us a glimpse back into the end or the tail end of Solomon's leadership of, of king of Israel. Right? One that was harsh and one that was defined by the slavery of the people. And so the people of Israel come with Jeroboam as their, their spokesperson having returned from Egypt. Rehoboam, will you please consider not making us work as hard, not using us as slaves during your kingship? Verse 4, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. You don't have to be a perfect king. Just lighten the yoke, and we will serve you. And so Rehoboam responds, okay, give me three days. Let me think about it. During those three days, Rehoboam goes to take counsel. He goes to two different groups. The first group is this group of older men, Wise men who had sat in the courts of Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. These old men who had watched Solomon uh, deal with the people of Israel in wisdom. And he asked them, how do you advise I handle this situation? And the old men tell him very very frankly and, and very clearly, well, just don't abuse them and they will serve you forever. Right? Don't make them your slaves and they will, they will be faithful to you. The other group that Solomon consults is the young men. The text literally says the men that he grew up with. Right? The men that he ran around with throughout his life as his dad was king of Israel. He got to do all sorts of different things. The, his buddies that he's grown up with. And he asked them the same question. What do you think I should do with the people of Israel? How do you think I should respond to their request uh, to, to not make them or continue to make them slaves? Verse 10, and the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy. And say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Right? They tell him not to, not to slacken up on the people, not to, not to be easy with the people, not to treat the people as the people of God, but to continue and be even more harsh than Solomon, his father. And what happens? Verses 12 through 15. Jeroboam, people of Israel, come back to Rehoboam on the third day. And what does Rehoboam decide to do? He takes the counsel of the young men. 
right? Rehoboam's foolishness is demonstrated with, by the advice that he takes from the young men, the advice that, that centers around pride and arrogance and immaturity and shows Rehoboam not to be the new Moses who's going to lead the people out of slavery even in their own land, but instead to be an even harsher Pharaoh here in the land of Israel. Right? Rehoboam shows his cards, right? He, he shows himself to be a foolish man immature man and quite honestly a terrible leader and again as you read through the chapter up to this point you don't really realize how destructive this is until you get into verses 17 and following really verse 16 and following Right? Rehoboam has just demonstrated for us, if Solomon demonstrated, at least in his early years, what a wise king of Israel was to look like, Rehoboam demonstrates, us, demonstrates for us in just a matter of a few verses what a foolish king looks like. And the result of that, right, it's, it doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Just a foolish king can be fixed, sure. Actually, no. In verse 16, what's the result of Rehoboam's foolishness? When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. And so Israel went to their tents. And the author goes on to describe a nation that is no longer united under one king. But it describes... Ten of the tribes abandoning the kingship of the son of David, Rehoboam. And two of the tribes, only two of the tribes remaining under Rehoboam's kingship. It's crazy to think how just one foolish king could lead to a split in the kingdom. Israel's world, we we kind of don't really feel this very much, but we should. Israel's world has just fallen apart. Right? Hundreds of years settled in the land of Canaan together as a united nation, gone in the blink of an eye. Right? Eighty years under David and Solomon of this strong kingdom, and, and, and during Solomon's reign, Uh, raised up to be one of the most powerful nations on the earth, gone within the blink of an eye. All because of testosterone. How did we get here? How did we wind up here with the world literally falling apart in Israel? Well, the gem right there in the middle of the passage in verse 15 explains exactly how we got here. Yes, Rehoboam is a foolish king. However, the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shelanite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Yes, on the one hand, 
Rehoboam is a foolish king who has just done something that divided the kingdom of Israel. On the other hand, God is doing something. Right? On the other hand, God is doing exactly what he told Solomon that he would do in chapter 11. What we realize in verse 15 is that, is that even though it feels like the kingdom of Israel is out of control and, and, and spinning out of control like, with no one at the wheel, we realize no, no God is at the wheel. Right? God is the one who is over, who is sovereign over this turn of events. God is the one who is controlling what's going on. These things are happening exactly according to the decrees of God. It's kind of like a free fall. There are two different kinds of free fall, or maybe more, but at least two. There's that free fall that that happens when you when people jump out of an airplane with a parachute on their back and they wait five minutes until they get the proper the right altitude and they pull that string and a parachute happens right it's that that time between when they jump out of the airplane and when that parachute catches air and they slow down and eventually hit the dirt right there's that kind of free fall that's completely uncontrolled that's just you're just falling and the only thing that can stop you is that parachute there's another kind of free fall that you experience at the top or between the top of that big giant roller coaster and the bottom where it turns up right there's that free fall that you feel when you're riding the coaster you're strapped in you go over the crest of the hill and you go down and you are literally experiencing free fall but but there's something at the bottom to catch you right there's something at the bottom to turn that free fall into forward motion Right? It's, not just a, it's not just a fall that's without control. No, it's a fall that is very controlled. There's been an architect who's designed exactly where that turn would be, where exactly where the free fall would end and your forward motion would increase. The sort of free fall that we see here is that directed free fall. That free fall that, that's governed by those metal tracks under that roller coaster. And that's the same kind of free fall that we experience in our lives. Yes, there are times in our lives when it feels like, again, the world is falling apart and it feels like everything is falling apart around us and there's, we can do nothing to, to stop it, nothing to control it. But it's not that free fall that happens when you jump out of the airplane. It's that free fall that happens when you go over the crest on a roller coaster. God's sovereignty as those metal rails directing how everything is happening and where everything is going and when everything comes together. That's the sort of free fall that we see here where where God is the one who is in control. When the world is falling apart inside of Israel, who's in control? It's not the people of Israel. It's God himself. So what do we do when our world falls apart? Well, first, we know that our world is not in an undirected, uncontrolled free fall. It's in the hands of God. 
And so in the same way, when, that free, when you're on that roller coaster and you, you crest over that hill and you hold on to those bars and hold on tight to the promises of God. And number one, know that God is in control. Number two, know God's promises and hold on to them. Because he's controlling the situation. You may say, well, well, that sounds really good, Pastor. That sounds like, that sounds like I've heard that before and that sounds good, but that's really not what I, that's not really not what I feel at this moment. You know, I, I need some proof that God is actually in control of this situation. I need proof that God is actually sovereign over my life that's currently falling apart. Well, there's proof here in the text of how God takes care of his people. In verse 21, Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, obviously not learning from his mistake that he's just made in Shechem. Rehoboam came home to Jerusalem, and what does he do when he gets home? He says, oh, it'd be a great idea if I assembled 180,000 soldiers and went to war with the northern kingdom. That would fix everything. Again, we see Rehoboam's foolishness. Rehoboam in this action, is planning for destruction. And the author of Kings is kind of bringing this out for a purpose. That number, 180,000, is not an insignificant number because if you remember, way back in chapter 5, verses 11 and 13, we were told of how Solomon was going to construct the temple and everything around it. And the author tells us in chapter 5, verses 11 and 13, that there were 180,000 workers that Solomon used to construct the temple of the Lord and his house that he, was, that he also built. So we have 180,000 in chapter 5 using to, to construct the temple of the Lord for the worship of the people versus Rehoboam here in chapter 12 with 180,000 people ready to destroy the entire nation. And so when we get to the end of verse 21 and we're, we're actually feeling the text and we, we're kind of in with what's going on, we say to ourselves, surely not. Surely he's not going to start a civil war in the midst of the people of God. Surely not. And who intervenes in verse 22? The word of God came to Shemaiah, this man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and to Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his own, for this thing is from me. And who intervenes to, to protect, to keep the kingdom from falling to, to pieces all the way? Right? Who stops the destruction in its tracks? Well, it's not some brave somebody. The king didn't change his mind. No, God himself intervened. God intervenes through the prophet, and they actually listen. Right? They listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. We see here explicitly God is in control 
of the situation. And he's intervening on behalf of his people in, in a couple of different ways. Yes, he's intervening on their behalf in the here and now. Right? He's stopping the destruction of the nation of Israel in its tracks. Right? He's, he's saving his people from destruction. But his intervention is, 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 is also kind of whole Bible contextually in focus. Because this sort of civil war happening in the context or in, in the place of Israel brings into question 2 Samuel chapter 7. Right, where God promised to David that he would always have a son on his throne. Right, how is the throne even going to exist if a civil war breaks out in the people of Israel? The author kind of, kind of brings this to the surface as David's name is mentioned four times in verses 16 to 20. Right, what about David? What about God's promises to David? What about those promises? Don't, don't they still have to happen? Or is God going to shrink back on his word? No, God intervenes. God saves the people. And he remains faithful to his promises. He stops the destruction in its tracks. When God's describing who he himself is to Job at the end of the book of Job in chapter 38, he answers who he is kind of related to different elements in the world. It starts with the whirlwind and then in verse 8 he picks up on the sea, right? Who shut the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb? Rhetorical question, obviously God did this. Verse 9, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it, that prescribed limits for the sea and set bars and doors and said to the sea, thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God draws the line. Where the sea meets the, sh- the, the shore, the land. Thus far shall you come and no further. The same for our suffering. Here he's drawing the line. Thus far shall you come and no further. Drawing the line for stopping the destruction of his people. God is remaining faithful to his people. The Lord is taking care of the people that he loves. And not to mention, as we learned back in chapter 11, verse 34, that these are, verse 33, that these are the people who have forsaken the Lord, his, their God. It's literally mentioned that as Solomon worshipped false gods, so did the people. And the second person or the third person plural is used when it talks about the people forsaking God. The people of Israel have forsaken him. And what is he doing here? He's taking care of his people even still. He's drawing the line and saying, destruction, no further shall you come. Again, the same goes for when our lives feel like they're falling apart. God is in control. And he has the sovereignty, the authority to say, thus far shall you come and no further. Because he's taking care of you. He's taking care of you.
What do we do when our lives feel like they're falling apart? Number one, we know that God's in control. Number two, we know that he's taking care of us. Number three, how do we respond? What do we do with those two truths? What do we do with the fact that we know that God is in control and we know that God is taking care of us? What do we, how do we respond to that? Well, the answer to that question comes first in the negative. In verses 25 through 33, we see Jeroboam sort of take center stage in the northern kingdom. All right, when, when, the, northern, when the, the ten northern tribes rejected Rehoboam as king, which left him only the, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the people of Israel, the northern, the northern ten tribes made Jeroboam king. And so in verse 25, Jeroboam, as he's been made king now, built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. So he's, he's, he's becoming king. He's doing good things, right? He's, he's, he's building up cities in the northern kingdom. He's taking God's promises that he's just been given in chapter 11 and he's fulfilling them, right? God promised Jeroboam in, verse, in chapter 11, verses 35 through 38, that I will give you this kingdom, right? I'm going to take it out of my son's hand and I will give it to you, ten tribes, right? I will take you and you shall, be, you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. God has promised to Jeroboam, I'm going to make you king. And if we stopped at verse 25, we'd see God has made him king. He's doing the right thing. But in verse 26, it takes a turn for the worse. Verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom, the kingdom, the northern ten tribes, will turn back to the house of David. He's afraid that the people are going to turn to Rehoboam instead of uphold him as king and so what's his solution right if this people if they go all the time down to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices then their hearts are going to be changed away from me and back to Rehoboam easy solution number one build golden calves hadn't seen that one before have we (laughs) build calves of gold two of them exactly in verse 28 And so Jeroboam's made for himself the object of worship, right? Not only that, but in verse 31, he appoints for himself his own temples, or he makes his own temples and appoints himself priests. He made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people, not Levites, but all the people. In verse 32, Jeroboam appointed the feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. Like the feast that was in Judah. You, you kind of understand what's going on now. Jeroboam is hijacking Yahweh's worship and directing it toward himself and directing it toward idols. Jeroboam himself is, is making for himself a god for the people to worship and turn them away from Yahweh. He's made them objects, the calves. He's given them places to worship at the temples. He's given them leaders to worship, which are not of the Levites. And he's given them a a pseudo-feast, a fake feast, another, a different feast of tabernacles. And so by the end of the chapter, we realize, you know, Jeroboam, the new king of the northern kingdom, has apostatized. He's walked away from God.
from this point forward, we realize that Israel never recovers from this. The northern kingdom never recovers from Jeroboam's acts. Not only that, but Jeroboam is, be- is going to become the, the metric, the evil metric, whereby every king after him is measured. Either he was more evil than Jeroboam, or he was not as evil as Jeroboam. He's, be- he's going to become the evil metric whereby every king in the northern kingdom is measured hereafter in the book. Until at the end of the book of Kings, in 2 Kings, at the end of that book, in 722 B.C., so about 200, about 200 years later, the capital of Israel, Samaria, is destroyed. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom, wiped off the face of the map. And again, you, you kind of wonder, like, how did we go from... 1 Kings chapter 10, where the people of, where, where Israel was ranked among the world powers, to 1 Kings chapter 12, where we have a split kingdom and two kings that are headed towards destruction. It's quite easy to see where Jeroboam went astray. In verses 26 to 27, we see that his apostasy. And eventually, the apostasy of all ten, all ten of the northern tribes is rooted in his distrust of the promises of God. Right. How does Israel get there? Jeroboam fails to trust God's promises. Where God has just promised, I will make you king. And I will give you to, uh, to reign over all that your soul desires. And what does Jeroboam do in verses 26 and 27? That promise is out the window. And his fear overtakes his belief in the truth of God's promises. Brothers and sisters, when our lives are falling apart, running away is not the answer. Running away, as we get to see here in the book of Kings, will kill you. Instead, might I suggest that you run to Christ. Run to Christ. Run to Christ who is gentle and lowly in heart. Find rest for your soul. Run to Christ who is literally at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all creation. Run to Christ who is taking care of you, even in the midst of your world falling apart. Run to Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep. He knows what your pain is like. And he bids for you to come to him and ask, you to, ask him to help you. Because he can help you. Run to Christ. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I give you thanks for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, O Lord, that we do not worship a God who is unable and inept, but a God who is sovereign over all things and a God who promises and never fails to keep his promise to take care of his sheep. And so, Lord, we pray that Christ would hear our prayers, that he would heal our pain, and that he would take our heavy burdens. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.